Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. Today I spoke with Roger Walsh and had a very interesting conversation with him about the journey he's had with practice in his life, spiritual practices, meditation, psychotherapy, those kind of things. He's um, in his late 70s. He's been very much in the um, scene of transpersonal psychology and uh, meditation um, since the 70s, um, writing lots of interesting books um, and giving doing great teaching um, from his university and meeting all the you know the who's who of the world of, of spirituality in his life. Um, and he's a lot of wisdom to share. So this was a conversation kind of like a campfire chat with um, an elder in the world of spirituality and spiritual practice and him sharing his wisdom about the path of practice. And i just uh, read a little bit from his bio on his website. Um, So Roger um, graduated from Australia's Queenland University with degrees in psychology, physiology, neuroscience and medicine and then came to the United States as a Fulbright scholar. He's now at the University of California, Irvine, where he is professor of psychiatry, philosophy and anthropology, as well as a professor in the religious studies program. Roger's research and writings span several areas. These include the nature of psychological health and well-being, meditation and contemplative practices, religion and spirituality, wisdom and other virtues, integral studies and the psychological roots of our current global crises. He is deeply immersed in contemplative practices as a student, researcher and teacher. Roger's books include Paths Beyond Ego, Meditation, Classic and Contemporary Perspectives, Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices with a Forward by the Dalai Lama, and The World of Shamanism. He's currently editing The World's Great Wisdom, What Sages Say About Living Wisely and Well. Um, he's collected lots and lots of awards for his writing, uh, international ones and national ones, and teaching of uh, different types. And uh, in his other lives, Roger was formerly a circus acrobat, as well as a record holder in high diving and trampolining. Recently, he graduated from the San Francisco Comedy College and tried his hand rather unsuccessfully at stand-up comedy. He was married to the psychologist Francis Vaughan, who died in 2017, and together they co-authored several books. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I thought it was really interesting. And if you are someone who is into spiritual practices uh, at any stage along the way, I think there is wisdom here uh, for you to pick up uh, on how to skillfully navigate the, the journey. Thank you. Um, so, Roger Walsh, uh, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. Thanks so much, Rob. Yeah, uh, very nice to have you here. And I, I will have done an intro where I go through your bio. Um, there's, a, there's a good one on your website, which I, I'll be using. And um, so to, to, 
what I'd like to discuss with you, the, the what I had in mind was uh, I've been known about your work um, for about 15, really 20 years and know that you've practiced uh, different meditation traditions, for example, um, and written books on shamanism and worked in the transpersonal psychology field for many decades. And uh, are you, am I right, thinking you're 77 now? That... Yep. You are? Yep. Yes, just correct that. Yeah. And, I, um, and I'm uh, 45. So I, I kind of see ourselves, perhaps I'm midway through my practice journey if I get to live a full life. And then um, you're an elder in, in this field, having d done many decades of it. And what I'd, I'd love to um, do with you is to have a kind of like a campfire chat with just an informal chat about your journey of practice and how that's changed over the years and the types of advice you would give to people perhaps at the starting out at the uh, beginning of their practice and then in the also kind of halfway through and if there are different types of advice you give to people at different stages and um, it's kind of like passing down the the uh, the wisdom through the um, yeah, intergenerational wisdom here so that was um, the thing I'd love to do with you um, today oh well, maybe so <laughs> yeah right so I thought, given that I would have done a little, a short bio of um, of you beforehand, but I wondered if you could give perhaps a, a short history of your practice, um, you know, when when it began and um, the the types of lineages you've practiced in and particular types of practice. I mean, I know it's a very difficult question because I, I know that you have done a lot of things um, in your life. Uh, including being a circus acrobat so and, and you know uh, to narrow it down seems a little artificial but uh, I, I hope you can get the gist of uh, what i'm asking oh well you're essentially asking about uh, the, my the evolution of my contemplative practices and i should preface by saying that i'm the last person i would ever expect to have been doing contemplative practices because I was trained as a physician and a neuroscientist. I was a hardcore scientist, more than that as a scientismist, that is one who thinks that science is the only way of acquiring valid information. And uh, after my medical training, I had the good fortune of getting a, a Fulbright scholarship to come to California to continue my training and specialty training in psychiatry at Stanford. And uh, California has a way of changing people. I arrived in the late 70s and found people talking about getting in touch with feelings and other weird things. And uh, I was very much out of my depth and out of my culture, uh, including even in psychiatry, because uh, I really had no experience of the inner world. And so I began doing psychotherapy on people, even though I had... Uh, in retrospect, I don't think I probably should have, but I figured I had a moral obligation to try it for myself. So I went into psychotherapy for myself, expecting a few interesting weeks and had the extreme good fortune of ending up with an extraordinarily uh, skilled master therapist by the name of Jim Bugenthal, 
who trained me to become aware of uh, the inner world uh, to be able to access the uh, realm of thoughts and feelings and fantasies and images and, and uh, background affect that constitute our inner world. And it it just blew me out of the water because I discovered there was an inner universe as vast and mysterious as the outer that I'd been completely out of touch with, completely unaware of. And I felt like I'd been living my life on the top six inches of a wave on top of an ocean that I didn't even know existed. And it just, it just was mind boggling to me, especially because as I looked around at the culture it seemed like 90 plus percent of the culture was also out of touch with this inner world and that our Western culture was extremely outwardly oriented with almost no awareness of the inner depths within us. But fortunately in California, there were lots of uh, things happening at that time. The whole human potential movement was burgeoning. And so I dove into that and you name it, I did it. TA, TM, Esta Rica, <laughs> Gestalt. <laughs> you name it, I tried it. And for a period of, uh, uh, I think there was one year where there were only a couple of weekends where I wasn't in a workshop of some kind or another. So I was really diving very deeply into a whole array of psychological, therapeutic, um, human potential movement uh, isms of one kind or another some of which was very nonsensical, some of which was extremely valuable. And gradually I found myself moving towards things like meditation, chanting and yoga, which really mystified me because I knew that religions were the opiate of the masses and relics of primitive thinking. And why was I doing these practices from them and finding them beneficial? And it really puzzled me. I literally spent a couple of years just wrestling with the question of how could my what I understood to be religion, these primitive, um, mythical, magical systems, um, have these some technologies which seem to be effective. And there was literally one moment as I was walking across the living room floor that I realized that behind the conventional institutions with their rituals and myths and dogmas were little recognized psycho-spiritual technologies for training the mind to induce the same states of consciousness that the founders had realized and to enable all of us to have the same kinds of insights and recognitions and realizations and even awakenings that the founders had had. And it just it just changed my life. And uh, I dove into meditation. And uh, the day after I got tenure at the university, I applied for two years of leave of absence to go to go to Asia and disappear into a monastery. And uh, so it became where, an ongoing where, exploration. Where was that? The, the monastery you ended up? What country? Well, I, I didn't spend two years, but I did spend a couple of months in Burma. In uh, my my first major med I experimented with a variety of meditation practices, but the one I gravitated towards was the Buddhist insight or vipassana practice. And at that time, the, the great aspiration was to go to Asia. It was very important to get one's BA, been to Asia. So I <laughs> went to Burma and, and got my BA. And 
I, I would say the main thing I learned was everything they say is true. You don't have to leave home to get it. Some of these, the teachers there were, some of them had very deep awakenings, but they were not particularly skilled teachers. And what I realized was that, um, was that realization or awakening and teaching skill are two different uh, capacities. And that's recognized in Buddhism. There's, there's prajna, which is insight, wisdom, and there's upaya, which is skill in means or practical wisdom. Uh, we find the same division in Western philosophy between Sophia, profound insight, and phronesis, practical wisdom. So, so that's, rec <clears throat> that's recognized in Buddhism and the West. And I just found it for myself. So I came back very grateful to have had that experience, but not particularly helped. And um, then I began exploring the full array of uh, practices that were available and kind of, again, California is a unique uh, laboratory in our time. Uh, if Ken Wilbur and I once had a conversation of when, when was the last a time, like say San Francisco, where you could find all the world's contemplative practices and religions. And the best we could come up with was Alexandria 2000 years ago. Right. With, with. So um, I was a beneficiary of this uh, meeting place of world spirituality and, and contemplative practices. And I just explored uh, as many as I possibly could. My late wife, Frances Vaughan, called me spiritually promiscuous, but it was a kind of promiscuity she could handle. So, uh, so that was okay. So I feel very fortunate to be an heir to uh, multiple psychological strains of wisdom and practice and multiple contemplative kinds. What, um, well, there's a couple of things I was, was, that came up for me when you were talking there. Um, the thing about the teacher uh, versus the great practitioner. Um, I, I like thinking of t tennis, that you've got the great tennis players wouldn't necessarily be great coaches. So the, the, the people that coach Djokovic and tennis players like that can't play tennis like Djokovic can, but they are great at facilitating it, bringing out Djokovic's great tennis. Um, I, I was a drum teacher um, for a, a long time and taught many people the drums. And um, there were plenty of, of drum drummers who were way better than me. Uh, in fact, I even had students that got better than me. Um, but I, um, you know, I think I was quite a good teacher, um, given the feedback I got from the students and parents of students and things I had. And um, that's how I saw myself. Uh, I, I did. I wasn't there to show off how good I was at drumming uh, or anything like that. It was. It, it was bringing that out of the the students um, and it is a great it's a, I think that's one of the kind of classic errors I've made on the path uh, particularly uh, idealizing authors or well teachers who weren't necessarily great teachers they might have been realized uh, people who were very proficient in meditation practice for example um and um we kind of conflate those things and uh, so if i take for example namkai norbu um is a great was a was a great zogchen 
master and wrote these amazing books on Zogchen and and I I think explored consciousness in ways that were very very um, unusual. You know, it's, not many people will be as good at uh, dream yoga as Namkai Norbu, for example, um, in the, in the world. And he was a great teacher. But then I I went to see him teach a few years ago. Um, and afterwards, I found this documentary that his son had made about what Namkar Norby was like as a father. And um, he was a really awful father, um, basically, uh, it, it came across as. And, and, it, and, and it was uh, this was later on in my life, I've kind of idealized teachers a bit less. But I kind of there was a time where I thought someone who could write a book like Namkar Norbu does or you know, expound on Zogchen teachings like he did must be amazing at everything um and uh so that that was that was um one thing and i i, I don't know whether you mm. had something else to add to that. yeah what you're speaking about ralph is what's often called the halo effect we have the presumption that if someone is outstanding in a particular area they will necessarily be outstanding in all areas and it just isn't so uh we ha all have uh, very specific talents and capacities, and they may be either uh, gifted or they may be highly trained. But in general, one of the things we know from psychological research now is that skill in one arena does not necessarily generalize to other skills. And in fact, it looks like, uh, unfortunately, that cognitive trainings in a specific cognitive capacity such as memorization or concentration, et cetera, don't uh, necessarily uh, apply, confer extraordinary capacities in other realms. Uh, they may be of enormous benefit and have overlap and facilitate the development of them, but we need to be very aware of our tendency to idealize and put a halo effect on people. And it's also really important to realize there are just us human beings. You know, there's this myth of the, quotes perfect teacher. Well, that is a deadly or can be a deadly trap. There are only human beings who teach. There aren't any perfect human beings. I've I've had the incredible good fortune of, of researching and writing and, and going around the world looking for ex human exemplars who are some of the wisest, most mature, most awake people on the planet. And... I can tell you, these there are some people with amazing gifts and capacities, and and they're all human. They all have limitations. It's just our nature. That's the way we are. I think the the religious hagiographies that you know are so <laughs> common in you know say for I was very into Tibetan Buddhism for a long time, and you know I'd read about these kind of biographies of ancient yogis and the thing is is that they're this was they were writing about someone who lived say a thousand years ago and nobody living has ever met this person and they don't know what they were like <laughs> behind the scenes and all this and this idea you get this idealized version and you sort of i, th I think we, it's it's so easy to just become like an infant something spirituality does something funny to people um you know myself included that we tend to think that the normal rules don't apply there like you, you can be have complete common sense in in your business and your in, um, family relationships and things and 
and and uh, and then once you get involved in spirituality it's like we just lose our heads and uh, you know what i mean i, I would I, I would partly agree ralph but i would want a nuance i, I don't think it's it it's inevitable but it's certainly you're certainly pointing to a trap right. that we all yeah. need to be aware of and yeah. you're pointing to the tendency to idealization yeah i mean there's so many stories of so-and-so heard the teachings went in the forest meditated gone enlightened well, yeah, that's kind of like boy meets girl, right off to the sunset, live happily ever after. If you've ever been in a romantic relationship, you know something is missing from that story. Yeah, and same thing. And there's a there's a uh, an, a bit of an adage in Tibetan Buddhism: you should always pick a teacher who's at least two valleys away from you, meaning you've got a day's hiking or so to reach them, because then you don't see their foibles as much, right. and you can yeah. and the within the practice of guru yoga in which one specifically uses one's teacher in a and visualizes them in an idealized form and 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 if you're doing it correctly you recognize that that idealized form is a projection of your own unacknowledged uh capacities and realization it's not that they're ideal it's that you visualize them in an idealized form, but what you are visualizing is an image or projection of your own as yet unacknowledged capacities and realization. So it, that guru yoga, when done in a very skillful way, makes use of our tendency to idealize. But hopefully, and it's not always so, but hopefully it's also done with a a wise context of recognizing what what the goal is and how it's best held so I, I could hear a little bit of advice coming through there that you were saying um it doesn't have to be that way that we don't have to idealize the um teachers and in a kind of infantilized way and um some things that have been useful for me i, I got very into sam harris's work for a long time and that um kind of taught me how to be a bit critic think critically about spirituality um i for the last few years been listening to a podcast con called conspirituality which is kind of very critical about spirit the spiritual scene and teachers and talks about scandals and things i think learning about specific examples of um scandals with with teachers and communities and those kind of things can can help you understand the actual uh, living world of all of this compared with the the ancient hagiographies we teach. I and mean, what what are, what other advice would you add to that in terms of um, people get, getting straighter discernment over this this issue? It's it's a, it's a seems to be it comes up a lot. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and you know, in the contemporary spiritual scene, the the problem of teachers and gurus and it's just, i mean it's an evergreen topic but it, it seems to be very much part part of that we, we're still grappling with this issue and um yeah what would you add to to that in, in terms of things we can do to actually uh get some clarity on the issue well you're, you're pointing to something important ralph and that is that this this tendency to look for and idealize an other 
is an innate part of uh, psychological nature, or at least an innate part of uh, our nature as, as long as we identify with our separate self-sense, our egoic self-sense. Um, and that that can take that that idealization can take many forms. It can be uh, it can be political idealization of a, a political movement, a political leader. It can be it can be a spiritual uh, figure. But the that tendency to idealization uh, is particularly problematic exactly when the, it goes along with the dynamic that you mentioned which is the tendency to infantilize and devalue ourselves. And so that is particularly tricky. And basically what you're asking is a subset of a larger question. That is, there are multiple traps in life and in contemplative and spiritual practice. And the question, the larger question is, how do we uh, most effectively, or at least somewhat effectively, guard ourselves against the many traps that await us. And how do we, uh, once we fall in, how do we extricate ourselves most skillfully? So you're actually asking or pointing to a large and very, very important question. Well, if, are you able to... Um describe a trap that you fell into and how you got out of it <laughs> or is that too personal <laughs> well we've only got an hour here enough. <laughs> so i mean there are lots of lots of traps i also went through my idealization phase and fortunately um had the good fortune of being with very good people and teachers and who did not in any way cultivate or that uh, idealization in a narcissistic way, nor did they take advantage of it at all. So I was very fortunate in, in that. Um, let's see, I think, gosh, I'll, I'll just name a couple that came. I, I was I was extremely out of balance in my practice. I've been an overachiever through my life, and I brought that overachieving style to my practice. So I worked very hard at uh, contemplative practice. I did, for example, a series of three-month retreats in which following the kind of ascetic advice of the uh, monastic Theravadan Buddhist tradition, I cut my sleep down to four hours a night. I meditated continuously from the moment I got up to the moment I fell asleep. It was enlightenment or bust, and I busted. I totally burned out, and it took me a couple of years or more to really recover from the severe burnout that I experienced. I efforted until I literally could not effort anymore. And fortunately, one of the advantages of spiritual practice, a contemplative practice, growth practices of any kind, is that ideally they are self-reflective and they enable us to bring greater awareness to our experience. So the eventual positive side of that or learning from that was I was so invested in effort and achievement that it took burning out for me to be able to let it go. 
And I reached a point where it was so painful to make the slightest mental effort to concentrate or focus that I just had to let go. And that's what got me into Zen. And Zen central practice is shikantaza. And the only instruction is Zen is just sit. Should I focus on the breath? Just sit. Should I, should I, should I, you know, concentrate? Just sit. Should I, you know, every the instructions are designed to undercut all the mental strivings and goals and attempts to be anything other than one already is in this very moment. And it literally took that for me to be able to see that my striving was a an attempt was based on a belief that the present moment is unsatisfactory, inadequate, and that it, what was required to, was to reach a future better moment. And that is the goal with and the belief with which most of us enter contemplative, into psychotherapy and into spiritual practice, the belief that I got to get better. And yes, it's extremely valuable to improve ourselves in very various ways, to purify, that is to reduce uh, destructive emotions such as anger and greed, anger and hatred and motives such as greed and aversion. And it is also just as important to come to a full acceptance and welcoming of oneself just as one is. And in fact, there is a point on the on spiritual practice where one realizes that the goal is not to perfect oneself, but to accept oneself. And that is a 180 degree turn and is absolutely crucial. And wise people with or people with wise teachers will get that sooner than I did. Yeah, and I, I think as you were saying, it, it it took your burnout to to get from that kind of more yang orientation into a, it kind of chucked you into a yin um, thing uh, in a way, if you could describe it that way, or um, that. And then, as as one gets older, you like a wine or a whiskey, the the flavour improves with age, and it get but that you can't rush that process. And, you know, when I think uh, when I was just starting out um, with all of this stuff, a very much kind of heroic effort and um, storming the gates of heaven approach. And in a way, we'd like to not have started to help, help people perhaps not start that way, but perhaps we all have to start that way or there's a do you know what I mean so you can't suddenly get to wisdom or you can't get suddenly get to a, a mature wine um and you know do, do you, I, I find it a little bit hard to uh, express this but do you know what I'm saying that uh, yeah I think you're saying we bring our personalities to a practice well there you go and... we're not all the same yeah and but so if, yeah. if you know you could meet someone and as Pat's you know that yeah, that a certain there we go. And then that, that, that that's a great point that there are types of personalities. Um, and yeah, and some people, yeah. you know, I I I brought an achieving, striving, goal oriented personality to this. Someone else might be a very lazy and slavish, mm. slavish and not practice enough. Yeah. So, you know, and and balances. You know, I'm now about to quote one of the 
first pieces of really great advice I got on the on the path, and that was the first retreat I did with Ramdas, and he said, "Balance is a magic word on the spiritual path," mm. and it's like I've been thinking about that for forty years, and boy, did he get that right. Yeah, balance. You know, where am I off balance? And the Buddha used a similar metaphor. He said, you know, a musician came to him asking about, about effort. He said, well, how do you tighten the strings of your instrument? You, you know, what you want to do it is not too tight, not too loose. And that was his metaphor for, for balance. Mm. Yeah. With that, and so we're kind of trying to get to this balance or harmony and we might get to that from one side or the other and i suppose a skilled teacher or community would recognize the different types of personalities and recommend different types of practice or different intensities based on the who they are but there's this kind of with the more traditional practices as they've come down you end up with this the the, the one true way the one practice the one path to do and this is the best one and everyone should do this and and i think we um it, there's a kind of more nuanced postmodern take on this now which has a, a more nuanced understanding of different psychological profiles that we could bring to bear on that yeah you're pointing you're pointing to several important things there ralph and one is that that the kind of practice and kind of advice that is is ideally uh, individualized. And Jack Cornfield, uh, probably one of the best known meditation teachers in the world, gives a wonderful story of his own teacher, Arjun Chah in Thailand. And you know, he, Jack would sit and listen to Arjun Chah's advice to various people as they came to him. <laughs> Jack, Jack is not a shy character. And finally he said to Arjun Chah, you're just so inconsistent. You tell one person to do this, another person to do that. And Arjun Chah said, well, I'm kind of like someone who's been walked down a long road. And I see someone else beginning to walk down. And I see they're about to fall in a ditch on the right. And I say, go left, go left. Another person's about to fall into a ditch on the on the left. And I say, go right, go right. <laughs> yeah, it's just, what do they need? Well, on one related to that, something that comes through very strongly in the traditions that have their origins in India is um, being aware during waking, dreaming and deep sleep um, as a result of, of, of many years of meditation practice. And some of the, of the traditions that have their roots in India kind of suggest that that is like a litmus test for they re referring to as as enlightenment um or realization or however they might phrase it and um it's a question i've asked a few people who were advanced in years who have done a lot of this practice um and um you know some have said well, actually well that's a, that's a red herring or that's leaning too far into transcendence and you might become really proficient in uh, all of that, but end up with no heart. Um, so what 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 would you say? I mean, I, I know you would have come across this being into Buddhism and um, different types and the Indian religions. And 
I don't know what your own experience has been with these three month long meditation um, retreats and what well you, let me just begin by saying I am absolutely hopeless at sleep yoga so so I don't like that criterion at all <laughs> yeah. but I think there are you're you're touching on larger questions here Ralph and one one first off you said the, the uh, continuity of awareness 24 hours a day is a test of enlightenment well first off I would like to do away with the term of, with the term enlightenment death to enlightenment as far as I'm concerned it is a lousy category it is unidimensional and only only talks about one dimension of of growth it is dichotomous you either got it or you haven't um it is uh it's from one tradition yet applied across traditions and it just misses so much and so many nuances and I would much prefer to do away with the, the term and replace it with spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is open to multiple dimensions of growth. It's op open to the recognition that growth can occur in varying degrees. Uh, Ken Wilber gave a nice example uh, You know, when someone asked about, uh, well, are you enlightened? He said, well, are you educated? Well, somewhat. Are you fully educated? No, could you be more? Of course. You know, are, well, are you are you awake? Well, I have some continuity a little bit of the time. Are you? you know, it's like, it's just a, it's just a, it's an invalid. It's it's. I think it's a very problematic category. So that would be my first <laughs> salvo in response to your question. Second, <clears throat> is continuous awareness a test of something well it's a great test of continuous awareness uh does it say but the, then the question is to what extent does continuity of awareness bleed out into or facilitate or is correlated with other beneficent qualities of heart and mind other capacities and you mentioned that some of your some of your guests have said no that's a red herring um uh, well, I don't think it's necessarily a red herring, but it is. There is a problem when we make any one capacity the criterion of a spiritual life. We are multidimensional, complex, multifaceted creatures. And any time we focus on one capacity, it is a problem. It's, this is part of a more general issue called the Goodhart's Law. And Goodhart's Law says when you make when you make any measure the criterion, you inevitably end up in problems. So we have made quotes. Uh, we have made quotes enlightenment a you know, this mythical accomplishment which most people have, when you ask, well, what do you mean by that? They have almost no idea, but it is inherently problematic. Now, as to continuous awareness, is this a valuable capacity? Absolutely. There's all, all psychotherapies, whether they recognize it or not, and a lot of contemplative practices have as a central capacity they are cultivating greater awareness whether they call it 
through self-reflection in psychotherapy or mindfulness in Theravadan Buddhism or awareness in uh, Rigpa and Dzogchen, etc., etc. Yeah, if you look, you know, Shiva and etc. We can come up with a long list of names. But going back to, since you started in Buddhism, back to classical Buddhism, one of the three capacities or gifts that mindfulness confers is it inhibits the arising of problematic mind states. It fosters the arising of positive mind states and qualities like love and compassion. And it balances them. Again, the magic word balance. So is this continuous awareness valuable? Absolutely. Is it helpful to think of it as a sole criterion? I would say Goodhart's law applies here. It is very problematic. Now, are there benefits and that come that are unique to the capacity to say maintain continuity of awareness through the night in sleep? Sleep. Absolutely. There are the whole realm of what are called uh, sleep yogas. And I would strongly recommend if you haven't that you have as a guest Andrew Holacek, who is an absolute master. I have skills. I have sent him an invitation, but I uh, haven't heard back yet. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I, I a... know his work. He's got, actually got a really good podcast um, I listen to. He does. Yeah. He does. Um, and uh, maybe your guests would be interested in in our my own podcast, Deep Transformation, Self-Society Spirit, because we did a three-hour dialogue with Andrew on Dream Yoga. And yeah. he is superb. Absolutely It was superb. a very, very good um, conversation you had with him. I've recommended that so, to some people. Uh, maybe I'll just complete by say telling a story from the <laughs> by the Dalai Lama at the uh, National Transpersonal Association meeting. He gave a talk and <laughs> said, uh, "I'd like to tell you about our dream yoga." And he said, first of all, we teach our yogis to be aware uh, when they're dreaming." I thought, "Oh yeah, lucid dreaming, no big deal." And then he said, "And then we teach them to be aware between their dreams, so then now they can watch themselves falling asleep. They can watch a dream arise. They can watch themselves going back into dream asleep, watch themselves waking up." So, so oh, <laughs> all right, this is I'm out of my league. I can see. And then we teach them to be aware that the waking state is also a dream. So now they're continuously aware, 24 hours a day, that that they are living in a dream. And he said, once you can do that, it's not so hard to watch yourself as you die and are reborn. Well, at this stage, I just had to you know, sit there with my jaw hanging because, you know, is it true? I have no idea. I have no idea how one could even test him. He's supposedly done it 14 times. So at the very least, we can. what we do know is that there are a variety of practices one can do while asleep. One can do so-called dream yoga and non-dream yoga one can actually do practices both in the dreams and between dreams and that these can be extremely valuable and that the mind in the stage is extremely subtle and malleable and therefore uh, according to the masters of these practices transformation can occur in some cases quite rapidly so again to summarize um, is this continuous awareness wonderful? Is it a, is it something to practice if one has the gifts to do so? Uh, great. Is it something to get attached to? Absolutely not. I did. I tried it. I what I ended up with was insomnia, not lucid dreaming. So, 
so, and again, is it a criterion of enlightenment? Well, I don't even, you know, I would toss enlightenment to begin with. Mm. Is it a sole criterion? No. So that would be my very long <laughs> convoluted answer to your question. Yeah, I actually, after listening to your conversation with Andrew, um, you, he was saying one of the first things you do in uh, dream yoga is try and transform objects in your dreams into other things. And I had a lucid dream after that, and I tried to change a um, pizza into a basketball. And uh, it, I, I made the pizza vanish, but I couldn't make a basketball appear. And I didn't quite know how to do it. It's a bit like, you know, when in this, like a Harry Potter movie or something where they, they, they spoke trying to learn some magic trick and it's well how do you even how do you actually and I was just sort of standing there just like willing this transformation to happen but anyway someone needs to look look more into well um one of the things I um wanted to ask you about is so um read your book essential uh, spirituality um a long time ago um I believe that's the title have i got it right yeah, yes essential spirituality the seven central practices it's basically a distillation of the of the practices that one finds across different traditions oh i just remember what i was going to say uh, while i was looking gormless while i was thinking of that um well, i'll get to that that in a second but the it's a di uh, idealism so you was, and this relates to the sort of um, what you were saying about the Tibetan yogis and the, the dreaming and awaking dream and things that you, you said you started off uh, a, a very hardcore scientist and uh, I'm assuming a kind of with a materialist worldview and, and that and has that changed? Uh, I, I mean, I imagine it has, but you know, how has that changed in, in your life? Um, when I think about my, my own life, I kind of started out very much a materialist and, there, and there's been a kind of gradual move over the years towards an, a, an idealist view. Um, I mean, I'd have to say, ultimately, I have not got a damn idea what is going on. Uh, I can't make any final statement about anything and, and feel confident with it. But I I, I congratulate you. Thanks. <laughs> um I uh, I was recently listening to an interview with Dennis McKenna, um, and he said he's drunk ayahuasca five hundred times roughly. And they said, "Well, what?" what and the, the interviewer said, "What have you learned after that five hundred times of drinking ayahuasca?" And he said, "Not a damn thing," <laughs> uh, which I thought was, was quite quite an interesting um, comment. And of course, um, of course, it'd be interesting to know exactly what he means by that. That sounds like a flippant response. Oh, which... it is. Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah, it is. But 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 it was so spot on. Um, I mean, I yeah, as, as someone who's drunk ayahuasca a few times, you know, I, I know what it, that experience is like. And I, I understand the kind of the joke there. But um, um, I've been very influenced by the work of Bernardo, Bernardo Castrup and sort of idealist philosophy, um, which, you know, putting just for those listening that puts consciousness as a kind of um the essence of every, of everything being consciousness rather than material and i found that a lot of the religious traditions made a bit more sense looked through an idealistic an idealist lens and i presume a lot of the 
worldviews where these religions were created um, were idealist. It was an idealist worldview, sort of, um, you know, pre-materialist, uh, pre-industrial worldview. But um, so, you know, where do you stand with all this idealism and materialism and all of that stuff? And, and how's that changed over your life? Well, I stand with you. I don't know, <laughs> but but giving a more uh, a fuller response. Yes, you're right. I started as a hardcore materialist, a scientismist, uh, and I, as such, dismissed all contemplative practices and spirituality, etc. Uh, it was a long, hard fingers dragging in the dirt uh, transformation for me to. Uh, let go my materialistic metaphysics and to move towards a more idealist one that is i i if i, I let me provide a context like you my fundamental context is agnostic that that uh, and the assumption that we live in mystery boundless bottomless mystery and that there's a wonderful statement by, uh, let's see, who was it? one of the quantum, original, early quantum physicists, I think, uh, uh, not pulling up his name, but he said, everything, everything, I, every statement of mine is a question. And that's the way I feel. So I can give various statements about my suppositions, but they're only suppositions. At bottom, I assume that I and all of us live in mystery. The great religious scholar, Houston Smith, wrote his autobiography, uh, published it on his 90th birthday, which is a great time to publish an autobiography. And he, the last words in his book are, we are born in mystery, we live in mystery, and we die in mystery. And that was one of the wisest people I've ever met. And I thought, great summary. So that I take that as my fundamental presupposition. We live in mystery, and we have to make best guesses about the, the way things are. In this case, we're very like Pyrrhonism, the ancient Greek uh, philosophy philosophy founded by Pyrrho, who was a Greek who uh, walked to India with Alexander the Great's army, met there the gymnosophists, the Hindu yogis, who and subsequently adopted a philosophy very similar to what became uh, Mahayana Buddhist, uh, Madhyamaka philosophy of that one can't make, uh, one cannot make definitive statements about the fundamental nature of reality. So, um, so I'm, I'm somewhat echoing Pyrrhonism here. But like you, I now assume, as my working hypothesis, that consciousness is primary. So that's a kind of idealism, and that all all phenomena are an expressions, projection, manifestation of consciousness. And that we, this to most people in our materialistic culture seems nonsensical. How could the mind create everything? Well, very easily answered. Uh, well, very easily um, in pointed to by remembering that every night we create worlds and people and bodies and selves and take them to be entirely solid physical real entities 
And it's only if we awaken in the dream, that is, if our dream becomes lucid, or when we awaken from the dream, that we recognize, oh, they were just mind projections. And one of the claims of the world's contemplative traditions is, well, we haven't yet awoken from our waking state and haven't yet recognized that this too is a dreamlike reality. But that is a potential, and that is the potential that the world's contemplative traditions point us to. And the practices they offer to train the mind are the ones which allow us to penetrate through the dream, to recognize its nature, and to recognize our, our underlying true nature or reality, which is far more vast and mysterious than we ever imagined. We're not only more than we think, we're more than we can think. And that is the goal of the great contemplative traditions. And uh, that brings up a a, a word um, that's become uh, much more important over the years in my own life is uh, trust. Th that to be able to trust that in, in, sort of initially mystery mystery is a terrifying thing uh, in one's life, and and part of the way I see a lot of these practices is, you know, you have enough experiences uh, that are a bit beyond your normal um, conscious states um, that you kind of gain a, a trust for what all the things that we are and, and all the... Um, so I've, I've, if I use myself as an example, I've um, probably done about 150 um, psychedelic experiences in, in my life, um, uh, you know, high, high dose ones. And after, an, after a certain time, you have experienced so much of those worlds that we kind of develop a trust for who, uh, well, I've, because I've, I've, I've encountered capacities in myself in those states, I have a trust for my own nature and who I am, but also what the nature of the cosmos is. And um, it, not that I understand. And I think the trust or faith is not necessarily related to understanding what it's all about. It, it you know. Um, So yeah, I think it, it, I just wanted to, to to bring that up as as something I think is a very something that I think probably develops, and I'm imagining it develops more and more in one's life. Hopefully, this trust, because I think it, well, initially it's terif terrifying the unknown, and I suppose that's what gets us into spiritual practices because we're trying to learn how to surf on the ocean of the unknown, perhaps, and. Um, Anyway, there's my uh, word word dump. Um... <laughs> well, it's a good one. <laughs> and uh, thank you for raising such, for being such a, an intrepid explorer and coming to your own conclusions about this and your conclusion that, uh, yes, we can, we can trust at a very fundamental level. And so maybe a context for a discussion on this between us would be to acknowledge that uh, there are levels of trust or faith. We, you know, we think of faith as a blind belief, but we can't not, we cannot live without faith of some kind, trust of some kind. 
we have faith that you know gravity will hold that if we step off this cliff we'll die etc etc so we can't live without faith but there are developmental levels of faith and the researcher james fowler actually came up with six major levels and if or they particularly relevant to uh contemplative life as much as we you know early faith levels um for example ma magic mythic or, or mythic conventional where we basically accept the world the culture's conventions uh, and myths as real as given as true then we move to the individuative reflective stage where we step back and begin to look at them well is it really true that my country is uh, the best and that a man's place is you know and a woman's place etc etc and there but there are stages that's about where most people end but there are stages beyond that an integrative stage and even a unitive stage of faith grounded on experience of oneness with the cosmos the Tao, god whatever um so let's first acknowledge that there are different stages of faith and what most people mean by faith is blind faith just you know i'm gonna you know believe this don't bother me with facts but what you are describing is a trust that developed out of testing an experience for yourself what buddhist buddhism would call tested trust tested faith and it's very important and it is true that the major jump growth jumps are stepping into the unknown and that is initially very scary and it, it's most extreme it because it is a it takes the form of a death re death experience one literally dies to one's own way of understanding oneself and the universe and it can literally be experienced as a death experience and that goes back to thousands of years of shamanism to psychedelic experiences even to depth psychotherapy but the good news is that the depth death experience is usually followed by a rebirth so that the archetypal death rebirth experience is the dying to an outdated worldview and self-sense and the birth into a more ideally a more expanded integrated holistic encompassing and healthy worldview um, now you know we were given some wonderful advice on this by one of the great sages of history uh, jesus two thousand years ago said the truth will set you free I have come to think that's one of the most compact pieces of wisdom that ever hit the planet. The truth will set you free. And most of us have the assumption that the truth is inevitably scary. That if we open to the truth of who we are and the way things are, we'll be terrified or even overwhelmed, maybe even become psychotic. And that's a very deep-seated belief for most people, which we don't really uh, recognize until we do deep inner work but it is a terribly constricting, limiting belief and very destructive one. But what we find is that when we open to experience, when we keep opening, we find that first of all, we can trust ourselves and we can trust our minds. And we find that if given the right conditions and the right conditions for the mind are a gentle, loving openness and awareness to experience into whatever arises under those conditions we find that the mind is self-healing self-correcting self-actualizing 
self-transcending, and self-awakened. The mind is innately holotropic, to use Stan Groff's words. It is oriented towards wholeness and healing. And many wise psychologists and sages have had the same recognition. Maslow called it self-actualization. Uh, lots of different names. Uh, Hamid uh, Almas, the uh, great contemplative sage who founded the Diamond Work, calls it, uh, was it the growth dynamic? So many different names, but the, we find we can trust the mind and we can trust ourselves. And beyond that, we find that we can trust the way things are. And coming back to Buddhism again, it's like we have faith, we trust in the Dharma, the way things are. And finally, we come to the recognition, which is embodied in a beautiful saying by the third Zen patriarch, the non-dual is one with a trusting mind. Yeah, that's beautifully said, Roger. Yeah, thank you. Cool. That's sent me into a, a, a feeling of deep relaxation. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, a couple of other things. So I, I was, was mentioning your book, um, Essential Spirituality, and I wanted to ask you where you stand on the this idea of a, a world spirituality as a legitimate path uh, that people can take. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of debate about um, you know it's it, yeah it's it's a big it's a big conversation and i hope we can we can pack it down into something quite tight but um i think ken wilber did a lot of great work around sort of integral spirituality as a kind of way of looking at that and there's a chap called john churchill who you may know who's sort of trying to create a planetary dharma as he he calls it and that although i've uh done practices in a, in a lot of different traditions um in, in my life uh, it sounds like you have too um and i don't know whether this is a personality type thing that you know you become to naturally omnivorous people but i've never i've never kind of um given myself over to one particular um tradition um and when i have conversations with people who have uh, they're always a little bit suspicious of the spiritual omnivore and um and uh, and you know this kind of planetary dharma or a, or a world spirituality seems a little bit um lacking in depth uh and not much weight behind it um that's the perception that quite a lot of people give, you know, who are, who are wedded to one particular way. And um, so, where, you know, where are you at with this? And I know, I know you were involved with the Integral Institute, you know, um, back in the day and, and all of that and working with Ken Wilburn. How do you feel about this topic of a world spirituality now? Well, as you men mentioned, Ralph, it's a rich topic, but to try to boil it down, First off, 
you, it, there's a distinction between a intellectual approach and a practice approach. And the intellectual I, I'm thinking approach. more, a lot of people have talked about the intellectual side of it. And I think probably my question relates more to uh, the practical side of it. Um, okay. And that might sure. be the hardest thing to address because, yeah, I don't know. Well, I think there's some useful principles here. First off, we need to acknowledge that we are in an uh, almost unique time in human history in which all the world's contemplative practices are available to us. And we it's very easy to forget how rare this is because this is the kind of air we breathe. But if you think across history, for most of human history, the vast majority of human history, if you tried practicing a tradition other than the one the accepted one, you're at grave risk of ending up on a funeral pyre or a crucifix. So it is very rare to not just have access to these traditions, that's rare enough, but to have the freedom to practice them. So one of the questions or cons of our time is, what is a skillful relationship to the plethora of practices we have? Because we not only have the world's spiritual traditions, we have the world's therapies, psychotherapies as well. And how is one how does one make optimal use of this smorgasbord? So a key thing, first thing to acknowledge is what's one's motivation? Is one's motivation in exploring a variety of practices uh, curiosity, which is fine. Is it to avoid the discipline of going deeply and doing deep work in a, with a particular practice? You know, what's the motivation? Is it skillful motivation or is it unskillful motivation? So that is key. If on the other hand, we focus exclusively on one practice, is it out of an ethnocentric belief that my way is the right way and I've found it and therefore wonderful me? Or is it on the other hand, uh, is it no, I feel heartfelt, this, this calls me, this speaks to me, I really want to do this. Very different motives. So that's the first thing. Second thing is to acknowledge that, that it may be quite appropriate to adopt different attitudes at different stages of one's life and spiritual career. In the beginning, it may be quite appropriate to, and here I'm drawing on what Ramdas said, to do a kind of initial spiritual smorgasbord, to, have, you know, to try things out, to see what really speaks to me, what works for me, what am I drawn to, what makes sense. Uh, but, but then there will come a time where it's probable that just sampling things is being a dilettante and that one really needs to do some, some focused practice. And then it's appropriate to do that, to let go, you know, dilly-dallying with multiple things and just dive in and really, really practice. And then for me, at least, I find that after doing a significant period of just, you know, focusing in on one or two things, I find it made me feel like I get a little stale. It'd be really good to try something new. And then maybe that's appropriate again. So, so that's one part of it. Another is you know, having a guidance and making use of wise teachers and peers. You know, that's, it, that's just crucial at any stage of practice. Having people one can 
turn to for to bounce bounce things off and getting get guidance from and yes we talked about the traps that can go with idealizing teachers but it's really valuable to have a teacher and it's really important to look at the teacher with as deeply as one could can you know the Dalai Lama says I, I can't remember his exact quote but once it should take very several years to really decide am I really going to devote myself to this teacher or you know and so there are wise ways of relating to teachers but it's really valuable to have a have a community of practitioners and you know that one can turn to for for consultation and advice about these things so those are some of the things I think that come into play at this stage and then then a question also of integration can we can we we recognize that no one practice does it all that you know even you know take your pick of well no one therapy is going to handle all psychological issues nor is it going to give you awakening no one contemplative practice or meditation or spiritual discipline is going to do it all you know the spiritual disciplines have no understanding of psychodynamics of psychological defenses of various personality types etc that's a modern western psychotherapeutic innovation and contribution so we can benefit from a complementary skillful uh variety of practices but again what's the motivation and i suppose we're quite good at deceiving ourselves and you know you can't just try and feel your own motivation and that's why you need to bring working with other people they reflect back what your motivation they can say they can smell the bullshit you know or or they can, or they can, re, you know, affirm the the genuineness of your motivation or whatever. You know, it's you with working with therapists and people who, they, you know, they 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 are not going to just tell you what you want to hear. Um, they they're going to give you a, as kind of as objective a reflection as possible. Because um, depending on what type of person you are, you know, you can end up surrounding yourself with um, yes people who just, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the, my book, Essential Spirituality: The Seven Central Practices, and I spent three years researching and writing that. And basically, my my interest was, what are the wisest people who've ever landed on the planet? Say, are the qualities of heart and mind that are essential for living fully, wisely, and well. And what are the practices that cultivate those qualities? And in looking across the world's traditions. I found seven practices that the sages worldwide agreed on were essential for fully you know, coming to a full life and uh, actualization of one's being and, and awakening. And the single, sim single recommendation that every tradition agreed on for every one of the seven practices and qualities was if you want to develop this capacity, hang out with people who have it. Hmm. That was the biggest surprise in writing that book, how unanimous the agreement was. If you want to develop this particular quality, whether it's love or compassion or wisdom or clarity or generosity, hang out with people who have it. Consciousness is catchy. 
that yeah that points to the kind of mysteriousness of learning and i've got young children they're nine and seven and you know we're, they're, they're learning from myself and my wife all the time and in, in ways we're not trying to teach them they just pick up who we are you know the good things and the bad things and um yeah yeah you can't not teach yeah there's um so just a just a couple couple of things to end up with um if that's okay um so related to what you're saying about different practices working at different stages of your life and knowing when to I suppose knowing when to cut loose or when to take up something new is is an art in itself um and um you know one thing that that happened so you know just wanted to share this with people who've listened and anyone who's listened to my podcast for a while will, will know that um i've been quite a fan of psychedelics for nearly 30 years um well actually 30 years um now um but recently i had a well a, a mini sort of psychotic episode um i think it's cannabis induced um and i have just decided to take a a, a break maybe forever i don't know at this point but um from from all uh, mind-altering substances completely um and there was a time earlier in my life in my 20s where i, I went was going quite gung-ho with the old uh, psychedelics and you know had had some weird things happen the tv started talking to me and those kind of things and i had friends who had gone schizophrenic and i knew what that looked like and where it, that ended up and i kind of took my foot off the gas for a bit but you know as i felt that i was doing okay i kind of took it back up and you know was was fine for a long time and and kind of got to a point where i thought well you know i'm all good with this and i'm not going to be knocked off my um uh my kind of um uh, you know start you know steady stance and but then it happens you know for me with you know decades of ex experience and lots of enthusiasm for it and um yeah it's been an interesting process for me and I, i've had to i suppose grieve a bit the loss of those states of consciousness that are so in, enjoyed and 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 the, the adventure of all of that and entering this new phase of, that's a bit unknown you know of the next phase of my own journey with all of this stuff that without those things and um yeah you were listening to, i've listened to a conversation you had with mark foreman who's a psychologist psychotherapist um recently on your podcast and he was saying that there's a chap called roland griffiths who's a works in the in the world of psychedelics and there's there's quite a the, the kind of uh, noisiest element of the psych psychedelic renaissance we're going through is psychedelics are amazing and they cure all of these things and and they're really safe and blah 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 but what roland griffiths was saying was that there's going to come a point where all the horror it's going to come out too and loads of people are going to go mad and um uh, you know that that will be part of it and we've, we've got to come to terms with that and give some honest messaging on these things so you know i was 
basically saying this as someone who has benefited a great deal from a wide variety of psychedelics in my life. Um, I've, you know, really uh, circled around the edges of madness a couple of times and once recently um, in the last year that freaked me out and basically I was just like, I don't want to go mad. I really don't want to go mad. So luckily I had the the good for I was in the right circumstances to just be able to completely the next day I'm done with that um, whereas er earlier in my life it took actually moving away from the social milieu I was in to get that break um, and I think this partly related to what you're saying about being in a community of people sometimes the community can keep you stuck in modes of living and practices which aren't actually good for you and uh, so say for example when I in my 20s when I, um, I was surrounded by people it was who were basically recommending just more is better and to just blow the top off this thing and it, that kind of uh, coincided with my um, overachieving heroic um, attitude and you know it was a bad mix so um, yeah I just wanted to share that because that's something i probably could have done with hearing young earlier in my life um from someone who had yeah. the experience with psychedelics not just someone who'd never ever tried them saying oh no drugs are bad <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah and uh you're i think this is an important thing you're saying ralph because this is an issue of our times yes there is a psychedelic renaissance <laughs> and Unfortunately, nothing seems to have been learned from the initial psychedelic uh, uh, euphoria of the 60s uh, when there was a similar hope and exaggerated hope and hype that uh, was not realized. And you know, there was the idea, well, if we just put psychedelics in the drinking water or everyone's drinking water, the world would be you know, a lot better. Well, um, you know, psychedelics are like a pandora's box they're very very powerful medicines and like pandora's box they can open a cavalcade of highs and both highs and lows heavens and hells de demons and saints and it's really crucial to acknowledge both possibilities and it's and uh, it's easy to fall into either extreme the, there are the people who say psychedelics are just bad, full stop. Evil should be demonized, illegalized. And there are people who say, no, they're these wonderful, you know, heal everything. And both are just both are just extreme nonsense. They are they have enormous therapeutic potentials, and taken by the wrong person, they can be devastating. And I have treated a number of people on locked psych psychiatric units who took too many psychedelics or took them at the wrong time, who had a tendency towards schizophrenia or manic depressive disorder. And these can be very pain painful, extremely disruptive, and in some cases quite long lasting. So, <clears throat> so it's important to open to the complexity of these this issue, the recognition that that the that you know any 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 medication any drug has potential side effects if someone tells you that a drug has 
no side effects, it means they either haven't found them yet or they it's a placebo or the person's lying. That's that's it. And with psychedelics, these are some of the most potent psychoactive substances known to humankind. And they should be treated with enormous respect. And traditionally they were. I wrote a book, uh, The World of Shamanism, which was you know, looked at, did an overview of this tradition. And what we find is in that tradition, for thousands of years, these substances have been reused richly and sacramentally as a sacred sacrament and to be treated in that way. <clears throat> and <clears throat> those cultures have a worldview to make sense of the experiences, a tradition to hold them, and a peer group to provide guidance. And that's what we need in this culture. And yet the psychedelics have erupted in a culture which has, at least in the 60s, had none, and now has very little understanding of altered states of consciousness, has no ritual, very little in the way of ritualized sacramental understanding of how to use them, and has a little bit now and growing community of people, wise people who appreciate the both the potentials and the dangers. So, I so, wanted to, to just make one comment too that in a tribal setting, they don't want people to go mad. It, it, you know, a tribe is a, is a closely related group of people, very close friends, people who've grown up their whole lives together. They don't want anyone in that tribe to go to lose their mind and go crazy. Whereas the responsibility is kind of a bit diffused in our society where if people go crazy, you just send them off to, um, uh, you know, some institution and we forget about them and, you know, they get medicated or they just get medicated and they're just, we just sort of keep them, you know, hidden a bit like um, prisons and things where we're not, we don't have that sense of community where we're, we really don't want that to happen to be we've kind of gone past what Dunbar's number or whatever where you know of the 150 people that we can actually feel related to and 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 i feel that's a part of part of it well and and you're right ralph yes and i would add that people who become seriously mentally ill aren't just kept in institutions they usually end up on the streets or in prisons because uh yeah. Our societies do not adequately provide mental health services to stabilize and and maintain people in life. Usually nowadays with the limited resources and 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 uh, time available, people are medicated and then they're discharged and so many of them end up on the streets or in prisons. It's very tragic. Yet used wisely, as you're implying, with care and compassion, understanding, you know, there there really are enormous possibilities. You know, I was particularly intrigued with the earliest psychedelic researchers, some because if you think about it, someone like Stan Groff, who supervised over a thousand psychedelic sessions, has seen a wider array of human experiences than anyone else in history, anyone, and. So these people, and there are only a few of them left now, are a living treasure. And so I was really fascinated to get these, really wanted to get these people together and get them dialoguing and interviewing, interview them and find out what they'd learned. There was a mine of wisdom in these people, and we distilled it in a book uh, 
higher wisdom, what el eminent elders say about psychedelics. Uh, so, but there's a treasure house of wisdom that can be obtained through these substances, but they must be treated with enormous respect and ideally uh, sacramentally. That sounds like a great book. Um, I look forward to reading that. So I've got just got one more question for you, if that's okay. Have you got time for one more question? One more. Yeah. Um, so we people be might be listening, look at this, and they're they're just saying, well, so we're obviously two white guys talking about this, you know, uh, one in America, one in in England, you know, pr privileged white guys. So my question is, is it? briefly is the is there cultural differences and then differences for men and women that are can be worth pointing out or do you know what i mean that you know we we, we you and i we are obviously covering our narrow sliver of the human experiences um to two white men um and there's a much bigger world out there and, and also I mean, I've been responsible for this, but the conversation has quite had quite a lot of to do with the Asian religions, for example. Um, but there's a much wider world, and and how do we, you know, how would you bring that other wider picture of the world in into this as a kind of closing? Well, it's a great question, Ralph, and I think it's again one of the issues of our time. How do we? How do we open to the full array of cultures and practices and uh, varieties of human beings and human experience? And, and ideally, all these practices are used in the service of relieving suffering and enhancing well-being. And that means using them to acknowledging our extraordinary good fortune and privilege, not just being white and male, but being having access to education, to health systems, to resources, to, to these pra practices, to an enormous array of things. In fact, there's a wonderful meditation of just, as you sit on, when you sit down to meditate, just reflecting on all the things that have to come together, all the gifts and privileges and opportunities that have to come together before you can get to, get to sit down and meditate. That's an endless list. So, how do we, the question, the life con for each of us doing these practices is, how do we use these practices to be, become more and effective instruments of help and healing and, and nourishment and support for others, particularly those less privileged than ourselves? That's, that's the key question, because you can't do these practices for yourself alone because you're not oneself alone to begin with, and because if you do them just for yourself alone, you're just enhancing egocentricity. So how do we do our practices in the service of relieving suffering and particularly relieving the suffering of those less privileged? And how do we bring those perspectives to bear on our, on our own lives? And how do we offer those multiple perspectives, different genders and and cultures etc and and that's a that's a great question and and uh, i think it's one of the things that's it's a good con to keep in mind so thank you for bringing it up yeah 
Well, um, thank you so much, Roger, with your generosity, with your time and uh, sharing your wisdom and such an interesting um, life you've led. And uh, I, I really, um, it's been wonderful for me to have you. I mean, you never even met me before um, today, but, you know, I've known of your work for a long time and you've kind of been, a, um, you know, a spiritual father or grandfather or something to me for a certain period of my life so thank you so much for that and i and i really hope other people um you know can can benefit from this and take on on these lessons from you um on on the journey of practice um well thank you for all the work you've done and for the gift you're giving me of having a chance of sharing these ideas because these insights and ideas are are to be shared and so for people who want to find out more about you, you, you have a website and podcast? Uh, website, uh, drrogerwalsh.com, and a whole slew of things on there, all free. And uh, yes, our podcast, which might be very interesting to your listeners, because there's a lot of overlap, is called Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. And key books related to this, the ones you you mentioned, Ralph, Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices, uh, the world of shamanism is another, and the other one we mentioned, I think, was uh, higher wisdom uh, about uh, the original psychedelic pioneers and their experiences. Yeah, uh, I've also read um, Paths Beyond Ego. Um, oh, Paths so Beyond Ego. Bless you for having read it. Yes, great. that's a collection of essays by or brief articles by real pioneers, Ramdas, Houston Smith, uh, uh Christina and Stan Graf, all, all the all the big all the names we've all, all the people we've already condensed into a collection of articles that are easy to easy to I highly recommend get that to people. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cream. <laughs>